the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. He is the author of the superlative work, The Case for Trump, and senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, Professor Victor Davis Hansen. Welcome back to America First. Thank you for having me. I don't usually, I try and eschew predictions, but sometimes one is forced. I see two potential scenarios, Professor, I'd like to test with you. One, an overwhelming, overwhelming landslide for the president to such an extent that even if the outlying mail-in ballots were to still be counted, he is able to declare at midnight that he has more than 270 electoral college votes and he comes out and he makes the speech saying thank you america i'm back the other one especially given recent pronouncements in key states such as pennsylvania where you have attorneys general state secretary secretaries saying they will not certify until every single mail-in ballot has been counted and has arrived is that there's no capacity to say that there is any kind of candidate, either candidate has 270, and immediately the whole thing goes to the courts for weeks, potentially months, and is dragged out in a legal battle. Do you agree with either of those, or do you have another expectation, Professor Hansen? Something in between, very quickly, I think more akin to the 2016 scenario in which he wins uh, by anywhere from a, a 20 to 80,000 votes in enough swing states to make likely voting fraud in Pennsylvania either irrelevant because you still will win Pennsylvania or that he wouldn't need Pennsylvania. My biggest, uh, when I look at the data and I try to read all of these different, uh, I don't see that the pollsters who are predicting almost unanimously except for four or five polls that he's going to lose have learned anything from 2016. They don't seem to tell us, well, this is what we're doing different and this and then the ones that make an attempt, Jim Garrity and National Review today, for example, say, well, this is how much they were wrong in each state with Hillary, and Trump is beyond that margin. So even if they have a three or four point uh, margin of error like they did, it still won't be enough for Trump, but they think they're st it's static. Biden, for all of Hillary's problem, Biden is a worse candidate than Hillary was. Two, we're in a COVID situation where a lot of Democratic voters are terrified to show up and their mail-in balloting has not so far produced the results they wanted. They're going to have to rely more on Election Day balloting. They've scared their own voters. We haven't taken any consideration of the million and a half students at these huge universities, Michigan State, Iowa State, Iowa, Ohio State, Florida, Arizona, that are not, not present where they registered are not going to vote in herd fashion. I know at Stanford, it's 95% of those 12,000 people vote. And Stanford's population is nothing compared to these huge uh, land-grant universities. Also, um, when they say 
a certain percentage of the party has or has not come out in early voting, and they use that to make these uh, models. I think there's a much larger percentage of Democrats, especially minority voters, are not going to vote with their party affiliation. And, and how telling is it that in just the last 48 hours, you've seen some desperate backpedaling and some uh, quote-unquote recalibration from key pollsters uh, saying that, that Biden may be in trouble in certain states. Is that, is that all the proof we need, that these polling companies really have not done anything substantial to fix the methodology that got them into trouble the last time? Well, well, Sebastian, that's a charitable interpretation. <laughs> I tend to agree with it, but a cynic, cynic might say that they have deliberately ginned up these polls for two to three months in expectation they would create momentum when they knew that the race was far closer than what their statistics uh, said that they were, that they published. And so then, as in 2016, when all of a sudden Hillary miraculously was almost dead even the day of the election, now they've made it much closer because they feel they've done all the damage they can do with while not completely ruining their reputation so they make it look a little bit closer as we get in and i think there's a lot of a truth to that so yeah i think that uh, as far as the backpedaling uh nate silver gave us months of scientific pseudoscientific analysis that said trump has one in 99 chances of winning the popular vote pennsylvania was all dead all but dead and then Ten, day, uh, ten days ago, he said, Democrats, you don't need to win Pennsylvania. Biden can win without it. And then now he's saying yesterday it's going to be very hard to win for Biden if he doesn't win Pennsylvania. So what's going up? Because I don't think he falls into that cynical category. I think he's a true believer, and he feels that he's using data. But the problem is he's a computer statistician or he's an analyst, but he doesn't gather the data. So he can have any model he wants, but if you put the wrong data in it, and we know what the wrong data is, that there are 5% of the electorate, at least, will not tell you they're going to vote for Donald Trump. And, and when he, when Silver and the state secretary of Pennsylvania say things to the effect that if Donald Trump wins or he can only win if there is cheating, shouldn't there be consequences for that kind of a statement? Well, it's hard to know in a free society, given all the stuff that's that's gone on. I mean, uh, whether it's big tech telling us that they have a certain set of rules of evidentiary proof that you must reach before they'll air an allegation completely non-applicable to the Steele dossier or Donald Trump's tax returns, but suddenly completely applicable to the Biden, uh, Hunter Biden trove. So it's just something we're li living with. And I wrote a piece in American Greatness today that this will be a phenomenal win, I think, for Donald Trump because he had no, no institution on his side, not the retired military, not big tech, not banks, not Wall Street, not Silicon Valley, not the foundations, not the bipartisan elite, not big money, media, entertainment, Hollywood, professional sports. I don't know one cultural, political, economic lever that was used to help his candidacy. All he had was the people. And, and you've, called, you've, you've called him a counter-revolutionary today, and we're posting the article right now. Uh, in that vein, 
Are these rhetorical flourishes, or, or does it matter when you have, for example, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for the first time ever endorse the Republican candidate, or when you have national or, or state and regional law enforcement associations, firefighter associations, come out wholeheartedly for this Republican uh, candidate? Does that tip the scales, or is that just an extra flourish in, in all the noise? I think there's endorsements and then there's endorsements. So if a black entertainer or a black conservative population, um, politician uh, endorses Donald Trump, it's not going to matter as much as Lil Wayne. Or if you have a conservative paper, but a paper that has not endorsed a, a Republican in memory, yeah, that matters. Or union members that are solid Democratic, but it's, and they say no this year, it's sort of what Ronald Reagan did in both 1980 and 1984. He created a Ronald Reagan workers, blue dog, Reagan Democrat, whatever you want to call them, workers party. And uh, when you see that grassroots uh, endorsement from people that you otherwise would not, uh, it, that was the problem with McCain and Romney. Every time they wanted to get an endorsement, they went to the elite or they went to an old has-been or they went to somebody that had no cultural influence. But these people do have cultural resonance. You know, working-class people who buck the union, newspapers who say, you know what, this time we can't be neutral. Yeah, it makes a difference. Professor, we are not far from the White House where we broadcast massive um, obstacles, uh, fences, walls are being constructed. If you walk outside, you will see shop after shop after shop boarded up and not with thin plywood, but with serious construction boarding because they're expecting violence. Uh, it's not going to be Trump voters that do that violence. If we look at the last 10 months in America, um, whoever wins, is it not likely that there will be violence on the streets of America, Professor? I think so. I think if it's close, I think I'm a little cynical here again that a lot of this violence will be positioned in the media and big tech as, well, this is what Donald Trump caused. It should be a wake-up call to all you federal judges, you Supreme Court judges, because the people will not stand for your partisanship, so you have to rule favorably. So it's a very brilliant preemptory strategy, and I think it will be with cheek and jowl uh, approved by the, uh, the mayors, the local DAs of these blue cities and states, and uh, that, that's disturbing. But they have to also remember Donald Trump's win or lose is not up for re-election. And so he has, he's not worried of the retired military. So if he wants to federalize these National Guard that will either can't or won't enforce the law, he's perfectly able to do that. And I think he will. So you so expect it, because this would be his final term that the restraint he has demonstrated waiting for governors to acquiesce in the deployment of forces will be a, a, a matter of ancient history and he will use force and come down like a hammer if, if the peace is threatened in the capital or elsewhere? Yeah, I think so. I think he'll do what George H.W. Bush did after the Rodney King riots. He'll call the military and say, I need... Remember, when, for all the criticism of Donald Trump when he envisioned perhaps doing that, and, uh, you know, Colin Powell said he got very angry, but it was Colin Powell who called George H.W. Bush up and said, I've got the Marines when you want them, Mr. President. Just give me a call. So they all knew what they were doing, that they were creating a new sense of alarm when in the past they had been perfectly 
willing to ensure that citizens were safe and the streets were orderly, if that, even if that required the federalization of National Guard or the use of federal troops. And are you not concerned when we see not just retired uh, general flag officers, but we see the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, make quasi-political statements distancing themselves from the commander-in-chief chosen by the American people? Do you have any qualms or any, any issues with potentially the president not being able to exercise his duties as commander-in-chief because of some fifth-column element inside the establishment? Now, that's a good, that's a, a very good question because that's a little more problematic in answering. In the, if you talk about the military, if Donald Trump loses the election, yes, I do see that. I see that there will be reluctance and pushback, some overt and some less, uh, less public. But if he should win, then I think uh, the chairman of Joint Chiefs, no matter what, is going to be relieved. I think the FBI leader will be relieved. I think the CIA uh, director will probably be gone shortly. And there, he, he won't have any qualms about doing that. And I think they know that. And so, but if, but if Donald Trump loses, I think they will feel they also have nothing to lose. But remember, they're, they're, these federal bureaucrats are, are they're a very strange bunch. They can do all of this damage, but from the last second they're on the job, they're always convinced that no one would dare fire them. They're so important. <laughs> so I, I think that the chairman and the directors of these, they, they still will have a shred of hope that they can convince Donald Trump of their brilliance. Uh, well, you, you have mapped just how unique a phenomena this non-politician is in your book, The Case for Trump, and in your fabulous pieces at American Greatness, the latest one describing him as a counter-revolutionary. Let me ask you the, 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 the second phase question, if, if, if you will. If the president wins, if there is incredible mobilization, he's able to declare and then, and then win it in the courts wherever there are challenges. As somebody who worked in the White House, as somebody who's on a Pentagon board for the president now, I think the only primary threat or the primary challenge will be in a second administration, not the questions of this policy or that policy, but the question of personnel and truly reigning in the swamp so it does the wishes of whoever the president is, whether they're a Democrat or Republican or an independent. Uh, do you have any uh, advice? Do you have any? Do you agree with me that that will be one of the major challenges? And if so, is there anything the president needs to do differently, God willing, in a second Trump term? Yeah, I think he. Re I, to be frank, I think he was a bit naive because he came in without a Republican establishment that was for him. So he was the first president in modern memory where both parties were against him. Yes. At least their elite were. And he hadn't been a creature of Washington. He made a lot of appointments of people who said one thing with the intention of doing the opposite. And they were. And then even when Ben Rhodes and those people went out of power, they left uh, levers of power within these bureaucracies to thwart him. And I think they've got my that's a windy answer, but the long and the short of it, they got wind of it. And I think they have areas that they're focusing on. And there's going to be some mass resignations if he should win uh, in the fall immediately. And I would expect if Donald Trump were reelected, you would see big shakeups in the DOJ mid-level, the top echelons, the FBI, but, but, the but, uh, but resignations, I think, are not enough. Shouldn't there be mass firings as well, Professor? Well, that was a euphemism, Sebastian. I think they, <laughs> they called. Oh, you mean you mean a Washington resignation? Yeah, 
They say you can resign in 24 hours or we'll fire you in 36. And so. then where will he bring the, 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 the human um, capacity, the bench from, to fill those resignations? Well, just from what I, I gather from people who are being considered who talk about it, the questioning, the cross-examination, the ferreting out of one's political history uh, is pretty intense now. So I think that they have gotten their idea that no matter what a person says, they're looking at their record, what they've done, and not not in a McCarthyite way, just that is this person the type of, anon is he going to be another anonymous, anonymous. a low-level obstructor or, uh, you know, sort of a whistleblower, pseudo-whistleblower. So, yeah, I think... That's one of their chief agendas. I think they realized that that was a chief problem they had. I don't know if they knew how to correct it or not. I think they do but now. there will be no excuse the second time round. We just have to make sure that second time round occurs. Yeah. The book is The Case for Trump. He is V.D. Hansen on Twitter. Professor, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Albert Moeller for townhall.com. America now goes to the polls, and more than 90 million citizens have already voted. We are participants in and witnesses to one of the greatest political achievements in the history of the world. America's constitutional order continues, and it continues as the marvel of the world, the longest enduring government under a written constitution. America's voters exercise a rare privilege to participate in choosing our own national leaders, charting our own national future, planting the flag of liberty in the soil of America once again. So much is at stake, and we know it. Feelings run high because the issues are real. And so we vote, and so we pray. May God grant his grace on America this election day. As Longfellow said, sail on, O ship of state, sail on. Indeed, I'm Albert Moeller. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, impacting policy decisions today, preparing public leaders for tomorrow.